Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 20th of February 2012. For newcomers, help yourself to the free audios for download at cuttingthroughthematrix.com where hopefully you'll start to understand the, the big system that you're born into, the system that's above politics, although it has members all throughout politics, but it is above politics, it's above the countries too, it's above nationalism, it's international. It's been here for a long time, and it goes by many, many different branches, many, many buzzwords, of course, the sharing common, sustainability, global, etc. But it's all the same organization. It's been at work for a long time, over a 100 years openly, uh, putting out their own books, in fact, to tell you they're bringing in a global society, which is going to be a planned society for the future. And eventually, of course, they'll go into the same system as China. They'll say who can breed, how many children you can have, if you can have them at all. And uh, we're well on our way down that path, actually, well on our way uh, through uh, the cooperation of the United Nations and all the treaties we've been signing. So go into the website, find out who the big players are, read their books as well, because they, they put it out there on the line for you. And think back a few years and you'll find out, my God, yeah, they have been implementing these very plans step by step by step in your own lifetime. And they've got quite a ways to go. They also want to bring in a, a global financial society, of course, which is part of total control. What's the whole idea of uh, inter-integrated economics is total control of the world and uh, every ex-nation uh, in it, because they call them the nation-states, of course, or regions. So, as I say, help yourself to that. You'll learn an awful lot. And remember, to all the sites listed have transcripts for print up as well as the audios. And go into Alan Watts Sentin, sentinel.eu for transcripts in other languages. Remember, too, you are the audience that bring me to you. I don't sell things on this, this particular broadcast. I don't have shares or investments in any products sold. And so I have nothing really to, to hype. All you can do is buy the books and discs and keep me going along here. It's not what you call a business, and it's not a, a sprawling enterprise either. It's, it's just something here to get the word out while we've got a chance to get the word out. And once it's done, uh, or once I think I've got to a certain point, I probably just stop because uh, if you don't know it by now, you'll never ever know it. It's not just knowing it, of course, it's what to do about it. That's the big thing. And most folk join groups that are already set up for them to join and get led around in circles forever. We've got to get beyond that altogether to do some changes for the better. Now, from the U.S. to Canada, you can buy the books by using personal check or an international postal money order from the post office. You can use PayPal. Some people just send cash across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal. And straight donations are really, really welcome. And what I try to do here on the broadcast is simply 
points out uh, the history of these organizations. There's thousands of them all interlinked together. In fact, you really find at the top of them, I'm sure there's this one big massive organization with shares in all these big international corporations. And, of course, they put their own men in politics as well. They're in and out of CEO positions and into politics and back again in every country across the globe. And the big plan, of course, plan is, is actually to get the central banks all uh, under, and they're already under the Bank for International Settlements in, in Switzerland. That was set up a long time ago in the 20s to bring in this world order. So the first one part was creating of a central bank, a private central bank, of course, Anything that wasn't privatized had to be privatized, and then it all come together under the Bank for International Settlements. We're there now, of course, and uh, the last few countries that didn't have central banks that were private and part of this uh, structure, uh, privately owned by the same people, I should really say, are being bombed into submission right now. And after that, this, the sky's the limit. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. A long time ago I mentioned a book called Obedience to Authority and I went and read some of it in the air in fact and it tells you, quite frankly, the way we were trained from school and the rest of society too, which is media, etc., how it keeps you trained into obeying authority. And we truly are conditioned to be that way. And more so in some countries than other, but we're getting to the same stage today. America used to be a bit uh, more sceptical, they'd stand up, but, but we really are kind of flattening out in some ways, partly because there's so many things to, 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 you've got to fight back at. There's so many things coming at you at the same time. But in other countries too, like Britain, they've never ever had that. Britain's like a closed shop uh, of ideas. It's, it's claustrophobic in a sense, because government's always been so omnipotent and, and huge into every facet of your life. But you don't realize too, there are a lot of these big think tanks out there too, which all go under the foundations, the thousands of foundations that, that fund non-governmental organizations and put up charitable works. Uh, and it's through charitable works that are really running our lives under the guise of charity. But they're really actually making political and social policies for every country. That's the big con of it all, you see. And you can't fight them so easily because you don't elect them. And they say, well, we're not responsible to the public. You don't elect us. But meanwhile, of course, the, the governments are also willing to get them into their chambers and let them spout off all their ideas to them. And some of them even write up policies for governments to sign, which they do. Uh, in fact, it's mainly these organizations that, that do it for the United Nations. So it's called governance. And we've heard the term increasing for the last oh, 15 years or so. But this article here I touched on before, and it's from a year ago, and it says, this is from the, the Center for International Governance Innovation. It sounds very, very official, doesn't it? But what exactly is it? Of course, it's another big think tank, foundation, etc. But we're conditioned to think, oh, it must be official. It must be official. And we, we tend to obey what we hear. And of course, this kind of stuff is taught through schools. They don't mention to the children, by the way, most of these things are private initiatives. But anyway, governance is a word in everyone's lips, blah, blah, blah. 
uh, says global governance is certainly not getting any easier, with destructive financial ripples, inscrutable oil prices, surging food costs, and unsettling national uprisings. These familiar concerns remind us that long-established governance systems with rich historic experience to draw from are increasingly caught unprepared by the rapidly changing social, political, and technological realities of our new century. Now, these guys know darn well that all the wars and all the rest of it are all parts and parcels of shaping this new governance system because they all go to the international meetings. But then they go on about um, geoengineering as you read down this. And I'll put this up tonight. Remember it, cuttingthroughmates.com. It says, into scientific and public prominence, what you bring up to prominence, some hope this might make the climate challenge more manageable, both by limiting the downside risks and costs and just maybe by frightening societies into reducing their carbon emissions because this prospect of having to geoengineer our global climate is quite scary, even though they've been doing it since 1998 quite, quite frequently. And it says here, it says, but who will, uh, will decide when and how much of this type of geoengineering is necessary? What happens when not everyone agrees? We'll all dump it on you anyway. If societies do start to feel protected against climate risk, will that reduce this incentive for them to curb carbon emissions? See, they want you to bring it down to the caveman level, an action which would address that risk in the first place. No, it wouldn't, because if you're global warming due to the sun and sunspots and all the rest of it, in a warming phase, then the CO2 follows, because it comes from the sea, you see, it comes out of the sea, it follows the heat, it doesn't precede it. How would the climate change and social changes brought by, uh, about by geoengineering impact other key issues which societies are increasingly wrestling with? Uh, these questions underpin the new governance challenge that comes with the emergence of geoengineering technologies, part technology management and part climate policy and part international affairs. It is spiced with all the same complex interdependence. This is standard bureaucraties via the United Nations speak, basically alluded to above for climate change alone. And there's also the added complexity, at least for solar geoengineering, that fast unilateral action appears plausible. And then it goes on to, to talk about the fact that they are doing it and have been doing it. And this is, the, this is one of the, the articles where they actually talk about using sulfates and aerosols. It says, um, even as the emergency session of the United Nations Security Council begins today in New York, the, 20th, the 20 aircraft currently comprising the so-called Stratosfield or Stratoshield fleet are continuing their daily sorties into the upper atmosphere. Well, that's just for one area because I can sometimes count 20 just here alone. Around 100,000 tons of sulfate aerosols have now been dispersed during the fleet's first four months of operation. Such liars, because I think we're also stupid that we didn't notice back in 1998 to the present. The United SC session takes place against a background of growing consensus amongst experts that the technology is indeed working. The UN's own specialist monitoring group concluded that the coalition of 23 countries actively managing the fleet has demonstrated that it can fulfill its stated goal of returning global radiative forcing to 2,000 levels within three years. This is what they claim by giving us what they call global dimming. It doesn't mention dimming here, but it does in other United Nations articles and NATO articles and even NOAA articles. So uh, this is their idea of causing global dimming to cut down the sun hitting the earth. 
She says the coalition claims that achieving this goal will reduce global temperatures to an average similar to the, to the, the, the I guess it's 2000s. In other words, around 0.7 degrees centigrade cooler than those of the last five years. But critics point out this will only be achieved by dramatically increasing the dispersal rate of stratospheric aerosols to between two and three million tons per year. This is all in, you're breathing in, folks. And that the consequences of such cooling will not be all positive. No, you'll be hacking your lungs up in bits and pieces. After heated public exchanges between Chinese, Indian and Russian officials over the past month, observers fear that any noticeable increase in the dispersal rate could escalate tensions into an economic or even military standoff. The UNSC itself has divided seven of the 24 current members sponsor or support the fleet's activities. Four oppose it and the remainder are for now cautiously neutral. Officials from the European Union, which called for the session, say their main goal is to promote agreement on the major issues at stake amidst the stream of conflicting political and scientific statements flowing weekly from national governments, scientific bodies and NGOs. Backed by supporters of the fleet's activities, including the 39 countries of the Alliance of Small Island States, these are all the organizations that are spraying their countries right now. Brazil and China will open the session by recounting several widely publicized findings of the IPCC's seventh assessment report. So they're trying to, 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 to again, validate it by uh, rigging the figures and say, oh, we're getting cooler, we're getting cooler because we're spraying the air. So it's having a good effect, although it'll kill, obviously, a whole bunch of people off. You cannot breathe this stuff for very long. Strong right opposition is expected from Russia and Canada. Canada's in it with both feet, believe you me. Both heavy backers of the Multilateral Arctic Petroleum Consortium. Over the past eight years, the APC has invested upwards of $500 billion in developing the Far North's energy reserves. However, speculators have raised concerns up to half of these investments might become unviable if the fleet's global cooling effect were to eventually cause a resurgence of Arctic sea ice. So they're, they're claiming responsibility for also causing the cooling. In other words, what's what they're telling us here? By their spring, you see. And so it goes on and on and on. But I'll put this up tonight for those who are interested. Because for years they denied they were doing it at all. And, uh, oh, that would be ridiculous, uh, poo, you know, and so on. And they just poo-pooed everybody off. But it's been going on. We've seen it ourselves. And lots of folk have fantastic websites up there with the spring. And everyone, if they want to look up at all, can see it. They do. Sometimes they'll do it very early in the morning. And if you're out at five in the morning or six, you'll see them do masses of it then before the folk are up and running around, you see. Other ones do it in the middle of the night. Now, the shale gas uh, has been causing a, a lot of back-and-forth arguments before those who are for it and those who are against it. This is where the fracking goes on. And they bring gas by basically causing explosions, hydraulic explosions under the ground by pumping chemicals in. And uh, I, whenever I hear chemicals getting pumped into the ground, I just don't take kindly to it, regardless of what they say. I, so far, with all the studies I've, I've read, it doesn't matter what chemicals you're using, it's bad for people. It's, it's bad for us. Uh, even the stuff to do with the biosphenol uh, and uh, uh, the xeno. Uh, estrogens that are in everything now, in the rivers, etc., from all plastics. Uh, it's just as- astonishing the mainline exposés that have been done on them, what's done to the people, especially the male. It's just, it's just astronomical. 
But anyway, this is this article here is a is kind of for it, I guess. And it's from the University of Texas, which no doubt is heavily backed by oil. But at least I'll put this up tonight. You can read for yourself what they say. And, uh, of course, they're, 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 every, every finding that they go into, every study they do say it's not that bad at all, etc., etc., etc. So you can make your own minds up. But, um, as I say, I, it's got to have effect down the road. It's got to have effect. You can't keep pumping these chemicals in and causing explosions underground and basically um, watching the ground subside and collapse in on itself. That is changing uh, the surface. And that, that definitely will. They cannot be so accurate that they, they miss all little, little streams and so on. It cannot be. And it isn't just the methane that gets into the water. I'm thinking more of the chemicals getting into the water too. We're already polluted with chemicals too much. And this article here too is to do with the big global move for integration of everything. We're already pretty well there. As I mentioned before, Carl Quigley spelled it out in Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment, the two books that he that he wrote to do with globalism, using the historical records of the Council on Foreign Relations to bring on this global society. And I'll go into this when I go back, because now they want to unify all accountancy, global accounting, financials. Financial. Back with more. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is this article is about global accounting, and they want everyone to go into this global accounting business. You see, to further integrate all economies and financial systems. U.S. official optimistic on global accounting move. It says. It says uh, a senior U.S. regulator was optimistic on Monday about finding a framework for the world's top economy to use global bookkeeping rules for investors to compare cross-border companies. We're hopeful we can put forward a model. James Croker, a chief accountant at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, told Reuters, more than 100 countries, including Europe, using accounting rules from the International Accounting Standards Board, are waiting to see if the world's biggest capital market, with up to 12,000 listed companies, adopts them too. Other heavyweights like Japan would likely follow suit. Kuhar said the SEC had delayed its decision due to the more urgent and heavy work of fleshing out a reform of Wall Street known as Dodd-Frank, working on aligning U.S. and IASB accounting rules aimed at paving the way to U.S. adoption or adoption, and has also taken more time along with review of the IASB governance. Again, everything's governance now, you know, because it's all interwoven, you see, corporations and so on in this new feudal system. Croker said he will make a proposal to the SEC commissioners in coming months on how the U.S. could switch, which would spark changes in how the IASB deals with national bodies. He downplayed the notion of smaller firms being able to opt out indefinitely if U.S. adoption went ahead. Having a model that works for everyone, even if there is a delay in timing, is important. Otherwise, you ingrain the idea that the smaller companies will never have to change, and you end up with a two-GAAP system permanently in the U.S. So... This is, again, it's about further integration of everything to do with economics, basically. And, and they won't explain this on this article. Uh, they just presume that most folk will just hear it and go yawn, 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 because it doesn't explain it, and, and except the boys who are near the top. They don't know what it means. It's, it's really an article for them. Now, Canada also, a little quiet Canada here, wants to set up a military base in Germany 
under a deal that will allow the expanding Canadian military to increase its global reach. It's amazing how, how you can go for years, nothing much happens, and, and you're, you're the world peacemakers, and then you're, the, you're spreading across the globe. At a time when you, most of your factories have all gone to China. But anyway, it says a new operational support hub, along with others to be set up around the world, will allow Canada to deploy troops and supplies to distant hotspots on short notice. So a joint statement to the German and Canadian governments as German Defence Minister Thomas de Maizière paid a visit to Ottawa. It's still not clear when the base at Cologne-Bonn Airport will be set up or how many Canadians will be there, although troop numbers will not approach the tens of thousands of Americans currently stationed in Germany. De Maizière told the press conference that he and his Canadian counterpart Peter Mackay are also discussing missile defence, the future of Afghanistan. That's where they split all the heroin. Come gets made up. Actually, they don't get the heroin there. The heroin gets shipped to France by tradition, and, and, and or the morphine does, the opium, and then they separate it into heroin and morphine and so on. Anyway, it says, uh, and the nuclear component of NATO's defence capabilities, all topics of an upcoming NATO summit in Chicago in May. According to the Canadian CBC network, uh, Germany and Canada have recently been expanding their defence cooperation as both countries grapple with prolonged military deployments to Afghanistan. So war is business, eh? War is big business. And then what you do with big business is either you send the troops in first or you put them in afterwards, but one way or another you always get the troops in there. The Koreans have experimented with setting up temporary logistics hubs in Germany to support their Afghanistan mission. One successful venture was recently launched alongside the American military in Spangdalem, Rhineland Palatinate. Canada's Post Media News said that in, declining, in deciding where to set up logistic hubs, Canadian forces have been impressed with Germany's organizational skills and also count a long history of cooperation as a plus. So that's just PR there. But one of the articles that someone wrote at the bottom, some of the replies was interesting. It says, uh, what about moving into one of the locations the U.S. Army wants to close permanently? I mean, that's more likely, isn't it? Isn't it more common sense? That would be the ideal solution for the local economy in such a place. I'm sure Canadians like pastries, like drinking beer, are going to the movies and have their hair properly cut just like Americans. So you've got it already set up, so why not just use it? <laughs> so I'm all for that. Now, this is an interesting article too. I've mentioned for years about how... There was an organization, it was called the Underground Stream, and it doesn't mention it here in this article, but uh, they got about Sir Isaac Newton, who literally was into Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah and the Talmud, and claimed that's where he got all his stuff from. And for years, the kid, you know, people like me were saying these things, and they were all poo-pooing it, and, but now it's come out, yeah, it's true. It revealed the, the cult obsessions of Britain's greatest scientist, Sir Isaac Newton. It says, uh, he laid the foundations of classical physics and considered to be one of the greatest scientists of all time. But Sir Isaac Newton was also deeply interested in the occult and applied a scientific approach to the study of scripture and Jewish mysticism. It's, it's, it's amazing to actually hear stuff come back that, that they poo-pooed and denied. <laughs> and he even said it years ago. It says, now Israel's National Library, which contains a vast trove of Newton's esoteric writings, has digitized his collection and posted it online. Among the yellow texts is Newton's famous prediction of the apocalypse in 2060. The contestual scientist, Newton, revolutionized the approach to physics, maths, and astronomy in the 17th and 18th century. They laid the foundations for most of the classical mechanics, including the principle of universal gravitation and the three laws of motion which bear his name. 
However, the curator of Israel's National Library's Humanities Collection says Newton was also a devout Christian who believed that Scripture provided a code to the natural world. Today we tend to make a distinction between science and faith, but to Newton it was all part of the same world, said Milka Levi Rubin. He believed what careful study of the whole text was a type of science, analyzed correctly, could predict what was to come. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix, reading an article about Sir Isaac Newton. And it says here, to further his understanding of science, Newton learned Hebrew and delved into the study of esoteric Jewish philosophy, the mysticism of Kabbalah and the Talmud. For instance, he based his calculation at the end of days on information gleaned from the book of Daniel, which projected the apocalypse 1,260 years later. And it says he figured that uh, this count began from the crowning of Charlemagne as Roman emperor in the year 800. He also believed that the geometry of Solomon's temple encoded ancient wisdom about proportions in nature and man's place in creation. And it says the papers cover topics such as interpretations of the Bible, theology, the history of ancient cultures, the tabernacle, and the geometry of Solomon's temple. This is, see, they're all precursors of what we call masonry today, Freemasonry. The collection also contains maps that Newton sketched to assist him in his calculations and his attempts to reveal the secret knowledge he believed was encrypted within. He attempted to project what the end of days would look like and the role, the role Jews would play when it happened. And uh, Newton's objective curiosity in Judaism and the Holy Land contrasted with the anti-Jewish sentiment expressed by many leading Christian scholars of the era, Levi Rubin said. He took a great interest in the Jews, and we found no negative expressions towards Jews in his writing, said Levi Rubin. He said the Jews would ultimately return to their land, but it also went further than that, if you actually read it, uh, about rulership over much, much bigger uh, places. But the university rejected his non-scientific papers, so the family auctioned them off at Sotheby's in London in 1936. As chance would have it, London's other main auction house, Christie's, was selling a collection of Impressionist art the same day that attracted far more attention. Only two serious bidders arrived for the Newton collection that day. The first was renowned British economist John Maynard Keynes, I'm not surprised he went, and bought Newton's alchemy manuscripts. The second was uh, Abraham Shalom Yehuda, a Jewish Oriental Studies scholar who got Newton's theological writings. Mr. Yehuda's collection was bequeathed to the National Library of Israel in 1969, some years after his death. So anyway, uh, as I say, supposedly it's on view now on internet, I believe, and you can look it up. I tried the link on this particular article and it didn't work for me, but maybe in some countries it will work. And you can see the online collection for those who want to. And this article here is also from Chatham House. It's the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the headquarters, the big daddy of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, they have many organizations across the world, and the CFR is one of them in the U.S. Anyway, it says the future of sustainability reporting. Now, I've touched on this before, but the fact is this was an article put out to... Remember, these guys have their, their, a lot of their members across all of media, all of media. 
whether it's television, reporting, or or journalism, they, they own the whole darn kit and caboodle. So it was to do with reporting sustainability and how they all have to get on board and start reporting, you know, global warming, global warming, and just keep parting all this stuff. And sustainability, sustainability, too many people, too many people. And it's just a concept of sustainability reporting is now almost 20 years old in the run-up to the Rio uh, 2012 or Rio Plus 20, it says conference, time has come to review its objectives and achievements and to decide whether action is needed to improve its effectiveness and uptake. Now, what they call that is institutionalizing the terms, the buzzwords, the slogans into society. So regardless of the topic you're talking about, it'll be injected there somewhere. And that's what they're really talking about there. So I'll put that up tonight too. And getting back to eugenics and, and the people who love to live off the backs of others, um, Richard Dawkins, everyone knows Richard Dawkins, who, who's gone to great lengths as, as the as sort of evangelist of, of secular humanism. And big expense, too. Mind you, he's funded by big foundations to put posters on buses and things saying God is dead, like Nietzsche, etc. But slaves are, slaves are at the root of the fortune that created Richard Dawkins' family estate. The ancestors of Richard Dawkins, the atheist campaigner against superstition, intolerance and suffering, built their fortune using slaves has been revealed. Well, that's nothing new, because if you look at the family crest, you'll see it. There's a little black man with a rope tied round about him. And it says, now Richard Dawkins, uh, the campaigner, uh, says it must face an awkward revelation. He's descended from slave owners, and his family estate was bought with a fortune partly created by forced labor. One of his direct ancestors, Henry Dawkins, amassed such wealth that his family owned 1,013 slaves in Jamaica, by the time of his death in 1744. But I believe they also had a ship too to bring them into Americas. The Dawkins family estate consisted of 400 acres near Chipping, Norton, Oxfordshire, was bought at least in part with wealth amassed through sugar plantation and slave ownership. Over Norton Park, inherited by Richard Dawkins' father, remains in the family, uh, it says with the campaigner as a shareholder and director of the associated business. And... Uh, then goes through the family history, how they're all into politics and uh, etc. And uh, they've always helped shape the, the direction of British society. And it goes on about all the wealth they amassed in all the colonies from slave ownership and selling and trading of slaves. But at the bottom, it's quite interesting because uh, I've got another article on it too because um, he, he, he had a... a a tete-a-tete, you see, with a, a Christian on a Radio 4 debate, I think it was Giles Fraser, formerly Canon Chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral. And the, the professor says to him, um, uh, it says, uh, what's the, the full name of the Charles Darwin's Origin of Species? And then, he, then when challenged, dithered and said, actually, Dawkins says, oh, oh, oh he's trying, this is the guy who's championing Darwin. He says, oh, oh, my God. He couldn't remember. He actually says, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad for an atheist, too. So anyway, um, it, was, it was quite interesting that uh, he got stumped on that. But uh, that's how it is, isn't it? Now, Britain's National Health Service, which is the basis for the American Health Service that to, to, to be based on, basically, because the RAND Corporation said they used the British one as a study group, uh, the one to copy. And, and they've been slashing back under austerity plans, uh, to basic, basic health care for years, mind you, in Britain. Because, you see, the United Nations only guarantees for the world, for the whole world, no favorites, you see, 
uh, for the whole world, uh, minimal health care. And they decide what is minimal. So you've been entitled to minimal health care. That's what America is going to get. But David Cameron, Cameron is committed to pushing through a new, uh, another reform, national service reform, as he came under fire for excluding critics of the legislation from a Downing Street summit. So he had a summit, but he, a summit, but he excluded even the British Medical Association and the nurses' associations, all the folk who were working with them, all the, all those folk were banned from attending. <laughs> this democracy eh, in action. <laughs> The Prime Minister accused opponents of peddling myths about the impact of the changes as he hailed constructive and helpful talks with some of those implementing the changes. So, I'll put that up tonight too, it's quite interesting. Now, Britain, on purpose, has been flooded with massive immigration into an already sinking country with very little employment. Uh, under the guise, of course, that, uh, well, partly Tony Blair's group wanted them to end the British culture forever, and I'd say it's been successful, personally. And also, and I read the article from the mainstream uh, for when his second in command said it. He was told by Blair to do this. But also, the other part, too, is to keep up a population to pay, because the debt is so high now, they need a massive population to pay off the debt. So I, I guess you must give them all welfare and hope that you can take so much back and pay off the debt. I don't know how they're going to work it out. 500,000 passengers are allowed to enter Britain on the Eurostar without border checks uh, between 2007 and 2011. All the privatization of these private companies that deal with it all, none of them are, are really working with each other. And sometimes months and six months will go by without, and they won't be checking anybody. I mean, it's just astonishing. Mind you, if they're after a certain group in Britain, every, there's no expense spared to, to, to stop it or catch them or whatever. So this means it's allowed to happen. It's intentional. Britain will stop some if it wants to. It doesn't want to stop drugs like every other country. Britain is, is the biggest dispenser of drugs, the British government, because they've got half the children on methadone. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And then they, then they set off the, the police to, to go and raid their houses for other drugs. Well, here's methadone. That will stone you forever. But now we'll raid your homes and, and mock you on television. They do all these cop shows where they mock the people when they raid their homes. Oh, look at this thing. Oh, look at that. Ha, ha, ha. You know, disgusting. Debasing. Debasing. And eugenics, it says, um, and this is from The Guardian, the skeleton that rattles loudest in the left's closet by Jonathan Friedland. It's strange this because it just came out and I think it's got a book out or something. But anyway, it's like deja vu. I'm sure I read this about a year ago. But it says... Um, does it pass matter if we're confronted by facts that are uncomfortable, but which relate to people long dead? Should we put them aside and to use a phrase very much of our time, move on? And there's a separate but related question. How should we treat uh, the otherwise admirable, thought, admirable thoughts of writing of people when we discover that those same people also held views which we find repugnant? The questions are triggered in part by the early responses to Pantheon, my new novel published this week under the pseudonym Sam Bourne. This, the book is a thriller set in Oxford in the year of 1940, but it rests on several true stories. Amongst those is one of the grisliest skeletons in the cupboard of British intellectual elite, a skeleton that rattles especially loudly inside the closet of the left. It is eugenics, the belief that society's fate rested on its ability to breed more of the strong and fewer of the weak. So-called positive eugenics meant encouraging those of greater intellectual ability and moral worth to have more children, while negative eugenics sought to outrage, out, out to urge, or even force those deemed inferior to reproduce less often or not at all. That's what it means by sterilization. The aim was to increase the overall, overall quality of the national herd 
multiplying the thoroughbreds and weeding out the runts. And the U.S. was in it too, and every other country was in it too. That was a big thing that came out of Darwinism as well. Anyway, because I'm about such talks repel us now, but in the pre-war era, it was a common sense of the age. You see, science is God, you see, it must be true. You know, and they have these fads through science all the time. Most alarming, many of its leading advocates were found amongst the luminaries of the Fabian and socialist left. Men of women and women revered to this day. I've been talking about this for years and years and years. Nobody ever ignored it till now. <laughs> this George Bernard Shaw could insist that the only fundamental and possible socialism is the socialization of the selective breeding of man, even suggesting in a phrase that chills the blood that defectives be dealt with by means of a lethal chamber. He actually asked scientists to, to develop a gas, and I think someone round Hitler heard about it. Anyway, it says such thinking was not alien to the great liberal titan and mastermind of the welfare state, William Beveridge, who argued that those with general defects should, not, should, should be denied not only the vote, but civil freedom and fatherhood. Indeed, a desire to limit the numbers of the inferior was written into modern notions of birth control from the start. Uh, that pioneer of contraception, Marie Stopes, honoured with the postage stamps in 2008, was a hardline eugenicist, determined that the hordes of defectives be reduced in number, thereby replacing, placing less of a burden on the fit. Stopes later disinherited her son because he'd married a short-sighted woman, thereby risking a less-than-perfect grandchild. No kidding, that's, they were into that. If you wore glasses, that was you. <laughs> that was you, kiddo. Anyway, I've got that one there, and it ties into it too, is another article as well, and it's from the Sovereign Independent on this particular story, and they go into it in a, a little bit more detail, uh, etc. And they point, they've also put in what Mr. Uh, Friedland uh, misses in his article. I'll put both of these up tonight for you to peruse. And talk about getting back to Dawkins again. What's the full title of your hero, Darwin's seminal work, where he says, oh, um, oh, oh God, he says, and he couldn't remember all. And, of course, it was to do with the most favoured race. And it's actually on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. You see, Darwin, his job really was, for all, all his supporters say, no, it wasn't. His, his, his job was to make you start thinking that there was races that should literally be liquidated. And they still actually think the same way today, by the way. And I'm not kidding about that. And I'm talking about the general population now in a post-industrial uh, society. This article here is The Politics of Uncertainty. And it's Green Futures Forum for the Future. Again, I'll put this up tonight too, where they go on about their governance, 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 food costs, unsettling national uprisings, etc. And it says, the familiar concern, these familiar concerns remind us that even long established governance systems with rich historic experience to draw from are increasingly caught unprepared by the rapidly changing social, political, and technological realities of our new century. So I'll put this up and you can peruse that too. Is again, governance, governance, governance. Now, and we're all going through austerity. The food is going up by leaps and bounds everywhere across the States and Canada, across Europe. Same stuff, especially meat. That's what they really want to cut you out altogether. And I've said that for years, that eventually they want a vegetarian society, ultimately. But that's for you lot, like not for them. But uh, Mr. Drummond from, from Canada, uh, a high He's put out his report on Ontario calls for cutbacks, it says. It's austerity. 
The Interior Government must curtail its spending with the kind of cuts not seen since the Mike Harris years, according to a report by former TD Bank Chief Economist Don Drummond. See, bankers run our whole lives, you understand. That was the intention a long, long time ago to, to bring this. I've mentioned this article by Rockefeller so many times where he said that um, it's far better that the world be run by bankers and, and, and intelligentsia rather than leaving it to the national auto-determination of nations. Released Wednesday, Drummond's report calls for extensive spending reductions and warns that without his recommended belt tightening, the province will face a crippling $30 billion deficit by 2017. Warns that the failing to follow such severe austerity measures could cause Ontario debt, which currently stands at $215 billion, to balloon to more than $411 billion in five years. To avoid this and balance the books by 2000. It's all, it's amazing. It's just like, we're all playthings. They're going to balance these books if it means stapping you all in and standing on your heads to make you fit it. You know, to balance their books. They'll do it. But they have 362 recommendations in his 665 page two volume report, which he calls a wrenching reduction from the path that spending is on now. He recommends including moving more patients away from hospital care, same as Britain. See, they all do the same stuff. It's a world initiative, folks. It's a world initiative to cheaper forms of health care. He also calls for increases in school class sizes, tighter controls over public sector wages, and moves to curtail the underground economy. They always stop at the underground economy. He said the moves are necessary if Ontario's escape its recent history of rising public debt that forces the government to spend more than it should on interest payments. You know, the governments too, even the, even the provincial governments are, are still giving money away abroad. Your local government's doing it. Sometimes your councils are doing it under, under redistribution of wealth and the provinces are doing it and the feds are doing it. Well, don't you help yourselves and stop giving it away when, when you're broke? And if you've got that much debt, I would say you're broke. But of course, we're, we've got to go through with the redistribution of the world wealth the world over, according to Marx, right? And the, the bankers do love Marx. He admits the cuts will be painful, he says. The government will have to cut program spending more deeply on real per capita basis and over a much longer period of time than Harris government did in the 1990s. So, back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the Matrix, and I'll go to Mike from Iowa, if he's there on the line. Hello, Mike. Hello, Mr. Watt. Um, yes. Thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate your show. And um, you, uh, Mike, basically what I, I'd like to ask is, you address a lot of things through a larger sense of talking about organizations and all of that, like a, a macro sort of thing. And I wonder what you think of a micro approach. And by micro, I, I don't mean um, uh, like something you'd see in a microscope. I mean smaller than that. Like almost th- this gets into a kind of a, I guess you'd call it a philosophy mm-hmm. of that which is smaller than um, the current notion of reality. And how that might be expressed through subatomic things, 
Yeah. Uh, but how would you implement it, though? You're talking about uh, really going after the big uh, organizations on a, on a micro level by right. using a different... How they might be expressed, how you could understand them in terms of something much deeper than mm-hmm. part of reality. Well, there, there's definitely a lot more than what they put out there. There's a deeper philosophy that they have behind it for sure. It's a very old philosophy too. Oh, and yes, it goes back a long way. Yes, so you, you're quite right there if you understand that. And, uh, however, even understanding it um, in any kind of argument, regardless of the size of, of, of the sides, um, I don't think would achieve much at all because these guys are resolute and understand they've made their careers, that they've vowed to take these on as careers, these particular attitudes and agendas. And so they owe their whole career and their standard of living and their status to belonging to organizations which are dedicated to this. So they're not going to change their minds because you point out realities or truths to them or even try to shame them into it by exposing what you know about them. I'm really not trying to address that. I'm actually talking about literally subatomic, Almost the whole notion of, um, I hate to say it because it sounds goofy, but universes within uh, charge clusters, Yeah. that notion. Yeah, you're, you're more uh, into... They express themselves in a larger reality. Yeah, uh, part of that, uh, you've got to understand too, I mean, there's certain truths in everything, even a thought has a power, but when you go into the, the, the sort of um, unified field theories, things like that, you're into part mystical, part... You know, and so you, it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, Also, when you look at the the society that you're trying to wake up and help, uh, most of them wouldn't understand what you were doing. They don't even understand really what's going on on a higher level to them because even their behavior is dictated to them too. Their culture is given to them uh, and constantly changing as well. So, so to get them on board too, to get even uh, enough of that, I don't think it would matter. Ultimately, in this world of history, I know what you're talking about, but ultimately in this world where we read our history, they use total force ultimately, power and brutal force, if need be, to get their way. Uh, at the moment, they spend billions of our dollars to indoctrinate us so that we don't uh, put our heads up and say what's outside there in the big world. Um, I know where you're going, but I think it's a power thing, uh, and that's the history of the world, is generally mass slaughter and ruled by a small elite. And we're at that stage today when we look at the incredible militaries that are built up to be internal and external and to work in unison against any rogue nation, uh, as you would, you would become if you did manage to dispel uh, those from the top who plan to take us all down. You know, but, but thanks for calling. And for Zachary from Maine, maybe he could call tomorrow. From Hamish, myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, me, your God, your God's go with you.